and welcome to the Safe Space Podcast. I hope you find whatever it is you need here with me in order to help you unlock what I like to call those light bulb moments. I just want to start off by clarifying I am in no way a medical professional or expert in the field. So if you need assistance, please speak to a trusted person or professional as the content can be triggering for some people. And we also want to acknowledge the traditional owners of this country throughout Australia and we pay our respects to the elders of past and present. Now, let's get into it. It's quite funny, and not in the ha-ha type of way, but it's funny how this perception of sexual-based violence issues has a female-only focus. And of course, we recognise that the majority of sexual-based violence survivors are in fact cis women, who have been traumatised by cis men. But that's only because we have those numbers. There is definitely a lot more out there and a lot more to the story. And in order to see genuine change, it's important to include both parties in the conversation. Today, we get to talk to the Man Cave CEO, Hunter Johnson. If you haven't heard of it, the Man Cave is a great program which challenges the current social and cultural masculinity norms. The program is all about providing these young men with a safe space to really unpack their understanding of the world and their place in it. So welcome to the Safe Space podcast um, and tell us a little bit about yourself, your project and why you started the Man Cave. Well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to be here. I think what you're doing is very important. So, um, and the world, you know, would be a much better place if this was around when we were younger. So yeah, thanks for bringing it into the world. Um, so yeah, my name is Hunter Johnson. Uh, I am the CEO of two businesses. One is called The Man Cave, where we teach emotional intelligence to teenage boys. And the second business is called Stuff. So it's a personal care brand for men uh, where the proceeds uh, fund boys to go through The Man Cave's programs. So it's kind of like the modern links, but with a social purpose and no misogyny is probably the summary. Um, and yeah, you know, Man Cave effectively for me is was built on the premise of a lot of the systems that we have to deal with, whether it's mental illness or family violence, are geared around crisis management. And it just didn't make sense to me that we're throwing money at the symptom opposed to going to the root cause. And um, yeah, really wanted to take a preventative, positive approach to working with boys and, and support them to be the best young men for their families, their relationships and their communities. Yeah, great. And that's so lovely. And I've seen some of the beautiful videos you've got up there on your website. It's very, very heartwarming. And it's nice. It's nice to see kids um, actually connecting as well in such unique ways. Yeah, well, I think that's the interesting thing after, you know, Man Cave, we've worked with about 25,000 boys now. And, um, you know, no matter if we're working with a private school or to like a really low socioeconomic or regional school is that boys really just want the permission to stop performing, to stop having to feel like they've got to be someone and just the ability, ironically, the safe space, just to take off the mask they're wearing, slow down, start to open up and to share what's really going on in their lives. And, you know, a lot of them haven't experienced authentic conversations before because they're so much on autopilot. And, you know, if you remember high school, high school is a pretty intimidating place, you know, and um, it's very much around feeling, helping them feel psychologically safe in amongst their peer group, which for many of them, they actually haven't. Uh, And so, yeah, we're, we're pretty... It's pretty profound the impact that we're, we're fortunate to make in their lives. 
Yeah. And I guess, in your opinion, what is masculinity then and how has it changed over time? Yeah, so... You know, it's a very interesting time for masculinity. I'd say we're we're really at an inflection point where the script of masculinity or the story of masculinity that you know we've been handed by our fathers or our grandfathers is is no longer stacking up. And you know, we only need to look at the statistics across you know what we've already talked about: mental illness or family violence or you know misogyny, sexual abuse, um, to know that you know the current way we're going is not healthy and it's not sustainable. And so we're at a really interesting point where men and masculinity is at a a real point where we have a choice whether we want to evolve um, or we double down on some of those more traditional stoic traits. So, you know, I think masculinity really is just a a set of beliefs that govern the masculine experience. And, um, you know, we're at a point in time now where, as I said, that, They've traditionally been quite rigid and stoic and, um, you know, very traditional in their nature. And now we're, we're moving to a more expansive and expressive masculinity where, you know, we're bringing in some of the more traditional feminine traits around empathy, deep listening, kindness, compassion. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that men haven't had those traits at all, but we're now at a time where those, the, the feminine is really making a really powerful rise in society. And I think, that's really exciting. And I think the important thing that we try to communicate with, with young men is this isn't about throwing away all your masculine traits, but it's about giving you the space to get more range in your identity. And by doing that, you actually gain more of who you are, more of your own humanity. Yeah, more holistic approach. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's a muscle. You know, a lot of these kids, you know, their whole life have been told, don't cry, don't be gay, don't be like a girl, don't be a sissy. Um, you know, and the other side, they're now told to be more vulnerable, to cry more often, they're privileged, you know. So it's it's confusing enough for adult men, let alone, you know, developing teenage mind to all they really want to do is belong and hang out with their friends and, you know, um, just get through the often very turbulent teenage years. So we just want to give them the space to just slow down, be exposed to very diverse role models and, and support them, you know, to discover what their genuine, authentic masculinity means to them. And um, how does terminology, I guess, play a role in that? Because we say lots of little things here and there, like say, don't be a girl. Like what's the impact, I guess, on using certain words and terminology and the association with those words? I think it's very important, especially at a young age when we're learning bad words, essentially, or things that just, you know, words in general, what they mean. How do you think that changes their understanding of their identity or their place in the world? Yeah, it's a great question, you know, because language is how we make sense of the world in many ways, you know, and, you know, the the words we create, create worlds inside of our own heads. And so, you know, it's it's very late and, and we know that the policing of identity and the policing of gender constructs and norms happen in our earliest moments of childhood, you know, all the way to, you know, you're, someone's having, you know, a boy and they get given blue outfits for their, you know, their, their baby boy who's going to come along or their, you know, little girl is going to be given pink. And so there's all these little subtle nuances that really shape um, how, we, how we construct the world. And that's traditionally been very um, dualistic in its nature. It's like men and women, masculine, feminine. And now we're starting to see, you know, the emergence of those who don't identify on the, you know, on either side of the gender spectrum and, 
it's a very fascinating time for gender and, and, and identity politics too. Um, and I'll just speak to, to the masculine experience, you know, it can be really damaging, you know, hearing, you know, as a five-year-old kid that's crying, you know, man up, don't cry. Or, you know, I was, I've got a park across the road of my house. And the other day I was watching this dad, you know, try kick the footy with his, um, his eight-year-old kid. And this dad looked quite alpha and muscly and had his full length skins on with no shorts and his singlet and, um, you know, was kicking the ball with his, his kid who clearly just did not want to be there. And, you know, I was hearing him just go, come on, mate, you can't be soft. You got to, you come on, mate, don't be like that. What are you going to run home to mum and cry? And, you know, we're sitting here in end of 2021 and, you know, here we are thinking that we're evolving on and yet, you know, we're, conversations like that still happen all the time. And, you know, that father probably was really well-intentioned. You know, he wanted his kid to develop some athletic abilities or develop his resilience. Um, however, his mode um, or his terminology for communicating that was, was pretty outdated because, as we know, when kids are so young, their identities are so influential, influenced um, by the subtlest of comments. And so, you know, I, I think we're at a point now where we just need to be more hyper-aware of what's the language we use to acknowledge and celebrate young people. And, and also, if we want to call them up or challenge them, uh, doing that with really select and particular language too. And I recognise it's, you know, we're in tricky times. Like we're in such a PC world. There's cancel culture, there's woke culture. It's, there's just a lot going on. So it, it, sometimes it can feel a little bit overwhelming. Yeah, definitely. It's, I, I know that my parents struggle with it, um, especially when I kind of turn around and say things. I'm like, that's not quite right. I'm not being rude, but it is hard to find that middle ground, especially between a generational difference. It's, uh, it's a whole new learning curve. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting because, you know, even in our conversations with young men around political correctness, like cancel culture, all of that, like, even even the gender equality movement, you know, a lot of these boys aren't educated on that or have an interest to be educated in. And when they hear gender equality, they think it's a women's event. Or if they hear us talk about race, they think about a person of colour, not those who identify as anything else. Or they hear about, you know, sex, someone's sexual orientation, they'll think, oh, the, the, the LGBTI plus community. So again, what we're seeing there is that the dominant privileged party are not being brought into the construct of the conversation. And I think that's the very interesting thing about privilege. And there's a, a wonderful quote about that, which just summarizes it for me effectively, which is pr uh, privilege is often invisible to those who have it. And when they are privileged, equality can feel like oppression to them because all they've ever known is a certain way of being and then suddenly when it's like, oh, no, you've, you know, you've got there. Of course, you've worked hard and you've had some struggles, but you've also had a lot of things that have supported you along the way that you might not even be conscious of. Um, they get quite protective of it. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're, we're at such an interesting time. And, you know, even with our business, the man cave, the reason we call it the man cave, not the feelings cave, is because we want it to be something that's accessible and relatable to boys and and we take them on the journey opposed to just coming in, having them feel like they're going to be fixed or something's wrong with them or, yeah, and just finding an entry point of education that, that makes sense to, a, to the teenage young man's mind. Yeah, of course. And it's all about, I guess, um, that inclusivity and giving them the options for learning and not 
feeling like you're shoving something down their throat. It's the worst way you can go about teaching anyone anything. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think, you know, if, if you're shaming people into something, it's never going to work because, you know, their identity is going to feel attacked. They're going to feel attacked and they'll probably just double down on, on what it is they're doing because that's all they've known. Um, and that's a, that's a real art, yeah. Well, yeah, that's and that's just a natural response as well. If you feel threatened, you just shut down. Yeah, no, exactly, you know, and um, one of the big things we try get the boys to get an understanding of is, you know, the world that which they've inherited and the different ways certain societies have, you know, got more than others or more privileged than others or more affluent than others is, you know, or even how their gender has supported them in ways that, you know, that hasn't supported other genders. Um, it's not their fault, but it's their responsibility if they want to do something about it. And I think that really just starts with self-awareness. And once they have that ability to reflect, become self-aware, listen to stories, you know, and particularly listen to, to women's stories or those from other minority groups, um, you know, that's where their perspective starts to shift. And that's where they start to understand and develop their empathy. And, and then they'll do, they can do something about it. But when they're just told they're wrong, they're bad, they're privileged, you know, then they get defensive. And, and it's kind of, it's a different and much harder conversation to have with them. Yeah, no, of course. And um, I guess that leads into the next thing I wanted to talk about was this whole concept of toxic masculinity and where it's come from and is that just reserved for men as well, do you think? Yeah, well, when I think of it's obviously the buzzword of the hour, you know, the, the toxic masculinity, and I know a lot of men don't identify with that um, or identify with the word like the patriarchy. Um and, you know, it's interesting. So when I hear toxic masculinity, I actually just sub those words out into the words generational trauma. And that's really what it is. It's, you know, if we look at the, the, the history of masculinity, the amount of wars that have happened, you know, up until World War II, how we've then come back and constructed the modern Western world is, you know, people who have come back from wars. And, you know, part of their healing journey is dealing with that trauma or not. And unfortunately, um, just, you know, that, that acceptability for their own mental health, um, the stigma around mental health, the stigma around seeing a psychologist or a counsellor was still really prevalent. And it still is to this day in some communities, um, which means that a lot of these men who have gone out to wars, come home, had real serious circumstances, have raised families but maybe haven't been as emotionally present as they needed to be or they've picked up some some addictions along the way, that transfers through family dynamics. And so, you know, I, I think there's a massive, massive opportunity for us to, you know, encourage and support men to do their own healing and subsequently that I think will, will bring much more equality in the world. And, yeah, so I, I, I think the other important thing is when we talk about toxic masculinity, we're not saying that all men are toxic at all but we're talking about a certain set of behaviours and principles that um, are probably pretty outdated and traditional um, that uh, aren't serving, you know, the men or, or the people that they're engaging with. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of men uh, and those around them would know what those behaviours are. Yeah. And I guess how do you think this experience then differs between young boys and young girls? Yeah, well, first of all, I think there should be programs that have young boys and young girls in them. There should be programs that have young boys, girls, trans, um, everyone in between, absolutely. Um, 
our program, for instance, just we, that's just our area of expertise. Yeah. So then I guess, how do you think by targeting mostly young men, you'll see change in that sense? Yeah, I think i just come back to what I said. I think there should be programs absolutely that work with, you know, both groups together. Um, for us, there is something, just as I'm sure, you know, if you've been in a space with only those who identify as women, there is a different energy and a different feeling. And the same goes with with young men. And, you know, our model is using very diverse, very relatable male facilitators who are kind of like that that cooler cousin that your family get together that you just want to hang out with. It's that like role model, non-authoritative figure who um, is just a little bit of further down the path than where you're at. Um, so, and that's, that's our model is, is expressing, sorry, exposing them to diverse men so they can cherry pick the masculinity that resonates most with them opposed to just one cookie size cutter that, that fits all. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good as well. And do you also help teach them how to kind of observe that cookie cutter size masculinity that comes into play? Yeah, no, absolutely. A big part of our program is just really kind of slowing the boys down and getting them to um, effectively question the social conditioning or the rules that they've inherited around masculinity and how they police each other on those rules as well. And really just open them up and go, let's just have a conversation about this. Like what parts of this work for you? What parts of this don't work for you? Who's ever been impacted by this before? And as soon as we start to hear the stories from the young men of boys, you know, who identify, you know, they might be, you know, in year eight and they're starting to get called gay by their mates. You know, we've had incredibly powerful moments where boys in the classroom have just said, I actually am questioning my sexual preference. And the fact that you're using that as a slur towards me makes me feel like an other and it doesn't make me feel safe coming to school. And so I get really confused and hurt by it. And then you can just hear a pin drop from the authenticity in that moment. And then, you know, we'll just open it up and say, "Who's it? whoever knew that about this young man? No hands. Go, great. Who's got enormous respect for this guy right now? You know, 50 hands go up. And then we go, well, what do you respect about it? And suddenly we start to hear these boys start to honor and acknowledge the courage that it took for a boy like that to share something so personal. And the X factor on top of that is sometimes we have the boys, um, you know, feel that we've literally created an environment that's safe enough where boys who have said that to that young man will stand up and apologize for the impact that that's had on him and for them to not be judged or seen as a bad person, but really for them just taking responsibility for something they did just as they thought it was a bit of banter. So, you know, what we find is that when, when boys feel safe, respected, and they trust the educator, um, you know, there's extraordinary impact on the other side of it. But it's just really rare for them to find that. Yeah, and it's really interesting as well when I think that these we're talking about young boys here. I, I don't even think grown men would be able to do half of those things either. How does this, I guess, transition into their adult life by learning these things earlier? Yeah, well, the, the way I think about it is it's like similar to riding a bike or learning an instrument or learning a new language. It's it's about, oh, you know, go in the gym. Like it's just getting the reps in uh, as young as possible. And, you know, the more time we spend at something, the more we practice, the better we get. And and I think that's that's really what it is for us. It's, it's just giving them that as early as we can, kind of knocking them five degrees a little bit. And then that five degrees compounds over time. And, you know, ultimately, you know, we get them being the healthy role models that, uh, that we need and, and want in society. Um, and of course, like there's no, you know, 
you know, you can't start this journey too late. It's, you know, I think there's, it's enormously inspiring when we see fathers or, you know, even grand, grandparents get involved in the work that we do and go, you know, I never had this opportunity. You know, my father never told me he loved me. And, you know, I know he did it by actions, but he never told me those words through his mouth. And so, you know, I want to be here to be a role model for, for other young men to, to give them an opportunity I didn't have. So, you know, I really do think there's an inherent desire inside of all of us to help a younger version of us. And, um, you know, again, I know men are looking for that opportunity to do that. Um, but sometimes it's just a little bit harder to find. Yeah, and it, it must be really amazing or even surreal when you see those moments kind of unfold in front of you. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's, you know, I think, you know, when someone's just, someone opens up authentically and it just stops the room and everyone just leans in and, you know, you could always, you know, that pin drop or just like everything's still and on. And, you know, to to have that moment with hundreds of boys every week is incredibly special because, you know, they've, they've never felt that feeling before. Um, and we know that you can't unfeel that. Like that is forever etched into their DNA. And now, you know, we just hope that, you know, we, we know that, but our goal is that then they become, you know, the ones that create those spaces for others and, you know, can be incredibly kind and empathetic and, you know, stoic when necessary, uh, partners in their relationships or father figures if they choose to go down that path. Um, but, yeah, obviously getting them as young as possible makes a massive difference. Yeah. And I guess, what do you think the biggest hurdle is for young men at the moment? And how does this impact them later on and ultimately the rest of society, I guess, as a whole? Oh, biggest hurdle apart from just being a general teenager. I don't know if you remember back, Eve, it was pretty <laughs> full on back then. Um, but, you know, I think the, the well, I think the, the biggest hurdle is, is, is twofold. I'd say one is a you know, the role that social media plays in their life uh, and the, the impacts on their self-esteem, their dopamine and serotonin levels, the loneliness that, you know, comes from that false sense of, you know, that short-term connection versus what we really need as humans, which is intimacy and community, I think is a really big issue. As well on social media, we know that the algorithms that are there are designed to keep capturing attention. And, you know, if you're a, a teenage young man, you're generally looking at some you know the internet's you know as we know is a pretty wild place and so if you're down some dark holes on the internet it keeps feeding you that it'll suddenly start to impact you know your belief system and your worldview and couple that with you know a society which is quite angry at men for you know some fairly good reasons um you know there's, there's a little bit to be concerned about with with young men if we don't keep exposing them to to diverse positive male role models and I guess what is three things you wish people knew about, you know, the young boys of today that they probably don't know or don't even realise that they go through? Oh, such a good question. Um, well, I'd say, you know, we've now worked with 25,000 boys and growing quickly and there are outstanding young men out there who want to create a, a better world for, you know, themselves, their relationships and their communities. Like I just can't champion that enough because there is a bit of a narrative out there that young men are a problem to be solved or you know they're, they're a big issue and 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 I just you know I think it's important that we have a balance in that argument too that there are some extraordinary young men coming through who are you know emotionally spiritually socially very advanced and it's uh it's pretty special to see um I think the second piece is that they're 
desperate for being exposed to values-driven role models. And what I mean by that is people who um, have strong character, you know, and for me, that's not about being the perfect role model, but it's about having character. So if you, um, you know, if you if you fuck up, you have the courage to sit in front of, you know, the young person in your life and take responsibility for it and talk about what you learned and not do it from a place of philosophizing or going, giving them advice, but actually just sharing your story makes a really, really deep and profound difference. And if they're exposed to the full range of that, when you're in your best or when you're, you know, you're picking yourself up from a, from a tough day, that really just shapes uh, who they are. Uh, and then the third thing, what would I say is the third thing that I think young people, people should know about young men. Oh, yeah, listen, they just live deeply emotional lives. <laughs> Although they might not say it or they're pretty good at, um, you know, holding it, putting the performance on or keeping the mask on or the armor on often when just given the safe space. And really it's an energetic thing, like they can feel it. Often we just go, you know, give them 30 seconds just to check in about how life is really going for them. And emotions will just start bubbling up straight away because they've just been holding on to it for so long. And, you know, we have boys in our program who go, you know, this bloke's been my best mate for five years and I just learned more about him in two minutes um, than five years of our friendship. And, you know, that's the catch. Often people just need permission. Uh, and from that permission, you know, that's where connection is formed. And, you know, I think that's why we're here. Yeah, amazing. And it is really about making, I guess, space for those moments in time, I think, as well, especially for young men. I think it's very easy just to go, 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 go. But um, I guess how does making that sense of safety, letting them talk, ultimately create change for them? Yeah, well, there's twofold. So I'd say part one is it's a place where they don't have to worry about being politically correct. They don't have to worry about right or wrong, but they have the space to get their unfiltered attitudes, their belief systems, their worldviews, their opinions out from their head into a discussion where they can talk about it with someone without being worried about being judged, shamed, or that they're wrong. And what we see now is because, and this is the really interesting thing about cancel culture, where and sometimes, you know, if someone's done something horrifically bad, consistently it might have its time and place. But, you know, what's what it creates is a ripple effect of men not wanting to stand up and take accountability for their behavior because there's the risk that their entire life, their identity, you know, everything they've worked for is at, is at odds. And I'm not saying that's right, by the way, but I'm saying that's that's what we're seeing. And so I think what we try to do is just create a space for boys where they can get the messy things out, the things that, as I said, aren't very PC, but they can get it out and have a conversation about it and potentially change their view into something that is more values aligned and more moral. Um, And they get to hear from other people's diverse life experiences, uh, which is so, so important. And then the second part is while safety is important, it's also important to recognize that the world is, is an unsafe place. You know, we strive for certainty as human beings because it means we can control situations or we think we can. But, you know, all we need to do is just remember we're on a spinning rock in the middle of a universe trying to make sense of things and, you know, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after that. And, you know, I think the more comfortable we can get people to be in uncertainty and and, you know, really question what is safe and what is unsafe. And, of course, I'm not talking about your physical safety here. Um, but, you know, I think that's that's really important for resilience and, and character development. 
Yeah, no, and I totally agree with you on all of those points. I think that's, it's almost like learning by doing a little bit. You get it out and you go and get the feedback. Yeah, totally. And also like, you know, being exposed to healthy conflict, you know, like where do we see healthy conflict? Like we definitely are not seeing it in our politicians. Um, But like, you know, that's inside of relationships with best friends, with friends, with partners, with, you know, husbands, wives, whatever. Like conflict is an inevitable thing. And where do we get exposed to healthy conflict? And I think a good training ground for that is in, you know, if we can actually create genuinely authentic safe spaces for for young people. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think that's it's so important. Hence the, the name of my podcast. Yeah, you've done well. You've nailed it. <laughs> But yeah, and then the other thing you spoke about um, earlier, or I don't know if you spoke about it earlier, but I read the report you had on the website, um, the Man Cave report, the most recent one, which I found really interesting. The report talks about how catching the smaller issues before they become bigger ones is really important. Mm. And I was just wondering if you could explain that a little bit more and if that would help, do you think, relate to preventing sexual-based violence in society and also mental health problems too that come with all this stuff. Of course. Yeah, so we, we have a just kind of like a core behaviour that underpins our values at the Man Cave, which and we have kind of our three values are care, challenge and choice. So care, challenge, choice. And the way to think about that is almost like the, the yin-yang symbol, um, care, challenge, and then choice is the line down the middle. And then we've got eight core behaviours that underpin um, those values that we all, it's almost like our code of conducts, um, but they've got cooler names than a code of conduct. Um, and one of them is uh, catch it before it drifts. So catch it before it drifts. And the idea behind that behavior is as soon as something becomes a blip on your radar, deal with it. You know, if that means, you know, you heard a colleague say something that you didn't quite agree with, um, you know, catch it early before it festers into something bigger or it becomes an interpersonal rift between you. If you can develop, it's almost like personal hygiene. You know, if you can develop the, um, a rhythm of and also a culture where that's welcomed and people don't feel scared by truth or by a healthy challenge um, between people, then your culture is can strive because you're constantly almost doing an audit on it and the dynamics can remain positive and and you know true um so i think in terms of you know behavior um in the environment sorry the examples that you gave um it makes a massive difference because if you say a young man who's you know uses you know words that i'm sure we're very familiar with to describe a woman who's slept with a lot of men you know he might be using some pretty uh interesting terminology to describe that woman um but then if you ask him to describe you know, a man who slept with a lot of women, chances are he'd have a pretty different way of describing it. And so, you know, how do we catch that early and go, hey, mate, let's just open this up. Like, you know, you mentioned the word slut when you were talking about, um, you know, this this other young women. You know, would you, what would you say to a, to a bloke who's, who slept with a lot of women? Oh, you call him a legend. Okay, cool. All right, well, what are we seeing here? And how can that, you know, that very small example, how can that snowball and how does that objectification potentially lead into, um, you know, some decisions down the track that may put you or someone else at, in a harmful way? 
And so, of course, they're at the beginning of that journey, so they can't see, you know, the, the entire route, but often it comes down to the stories that they can hear, particularly from women who have experienced, you know, some very poor behaviour from, from some of their male counterparts in their past. And so that's just, a, you know, one of many examples. But, you know, I think that's a phenomenal lesson for life is just to get onto things early as soon as they become a blip on your radar. Otherwise, we just end up walking around with this big baggage of things that's stressing us out and, you know, keeping our mind very busy. Yeah, yeah. And um, my, my favourite quote is, the standard you walk by is the standard you allow. Yeah, yeah, I love that quote. It's just my new life thing that I throw at people. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. You know, I think that's the, the moments of, you know, kindness, right? And it's like... I remember I went, I went to this philanthropy conference and, you know, it was, you know, people who came from very wealthy backgrounds and, you know, it was all about giving. And, yeah. and I remember we walked out of this conference center and there was a person who was experiencing homelessness, like sitting down right outside the doors and every single person walked past him. And I was like, oh my goodness, how about the irony of, you know, going to the conference, feeling so good about all the money these people are giving away. And then, the standard they're walking past is the standard they accept. So, you know, I always think when I hear that um, example, I always remember back to that that situation and just goes, you know, it's the minor things, the little details, and it's how you treat people that, that really matters most. Yeah, it really is all the little things that add up to the bigger things. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And even, in, you know, we kind of idolise people with these big moments of courage, you know, they did this big thing and it's like, well, actually... You know, it's the it's the little moments that go unseen or unrecognized that we all have in our lives that often require, you know, the most amount of guts. And so, you know, I think that's, again, bring back to the culture we have at Man Cave where we really have a culture of honoring people, which basically for us means we see people for their unique gifts and talents and little things that they do. Like we just have it as part of our, our culture that we, we let them know about it. And not in a, like a wanky way or, you know, super virtue signaling, but it's like, you know, hey, Tom, like, man, I saw you do this the other day for, for that person. I just want to say, man, I really respect that and yeah, keep doing it. And that, I think that's great. I think we need more of that. I think it does come off as like a, a bit stuck up or up yourself or if you do that or you look like a, yeah, like a wanker or whatever. But I think it's definitely something we need to normalize more. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? There's this like, you know, I've done a bit of work in the US over the years and I compare it to Australian culture and they've almost got the opposite problem. But in Australian culture, there's this like real resistance to, you know, there's a there's actually a book called The Australian Leadership Paradox, what it takes to lead in the lucky country. And it looks at how kind of Western white Australia was formed, um, you know, ignoring our relationship to our First Nations people. But um, when the convicts came, it was effectively a white culture that um, was filmed, but uh, formed um, first of all with trauma in their background and as convicts. And by nature, you know, we have such a low tolerance for authority, but we have a lot high trust. We love the underdog story. We love the larrikin nature, and um, tall poppy syndrome is a whole thing. For and if you don't know what that is, it's basically when someone's doing really well, we cut them down. And it's like an example from the farming days, you cut the tall poppy down in the field. And what that ultimately does is effectively creates a, a, a society that doesn't really allow people to flourish. And 
we, you know, we peg them, we, you know, we, we just make sure they don't, that, you know, they're good, but not too good. And, you know, we see that in the high schools all the time. You know, we do little activities where we get boys to just close their eyes and, you know, lift their hand if they think they live in a, a culture of judgment at their school. And every time it's 50 hands up in the air and we tell them to open their eyes and they look and they were like, what's it like to be in this? Have you ever talked about this? And like, no, we're great. Well, what role do you play in this? Now what? You've seen it. You've got a choice. Where do we go from here? You, none of you are feeling safe, yet you're all abiding by these rules that we didn't set those rules, but we're in them. So where to from here? And, you know, I think... Yeah, we've just got such a way to go just to really let people know what we love about them and to do that consistently, you know, and, and for that not to be this big, scary thing, but just, you know, it's part of normal conversation. Exactly. And that's, yeah, I think that's what it is. It's the fear factor, isn't it? People are just scared of, I guess, the unknown and being judged and all the things that they just, I don't know, it's just this big, scary thing. Which is crazy, right? If you just zoom out of the situation, we as humans, and like just to laugh at this, like we are fearful of telling other people we love them because we're scared of being judged. Like it's just so funny that that's a dilemma of humanity. It's like, oh, God, like, you know, and, and there's, you know, there's a lot of work in developmental psychology that talks about as kids, we trade our authenticity for attachment. So we trade our authenticity for attachment. So, you know, when we're a child, we're so authentic, right? We're so whatever, like we're free. We're running up to people in the park. We don't even know. We'll go sit down on their picnic mat and, you know, just we're doing whatever we're expressed. But slowly and slowly we get these social cues that that behavior is not allowed. That behavior is not allowed. You can't do that. And the world starts to impact them. And what they learn when they get those behaviors start to get impacted, they develop certain patterns, um, some positive, some not positive, um, to help them move through and deal with those situations. And so what we see is they work out who do they need to be in order to get love from their parents or their caregivers or from their social group or their friends. And so we start to wash away who we really are in order to belong. And I think that's a really big journey of those that, you know, in, in, embark on the journey of personal development work is, you know, finding out who I really am outside all the layers, all the conditioning and, you know, who's underneath it all and, and really, you know, going and finding that person. Yeah, and um, it's really interesting, isn't it, how society kind of creates this expectation that we need to categorise ourselves in a way to find a sense of identity. It's what advice would you have for someone who feels like they need to define themselves? Well, yeah, I would ask them why to spend some time reflecting why they feel like they need to define themselves and to do that without any judgment, just to really look at the, you know, what's, what's the facts and then what's the story that I've attached to the fact, you know, and I think that's a really important distinction. It's like, well, okay, what it, what's actually going on? What's happened? And then what did I make that mean? And, you know, that might be, you know, some minority groups who have come from really challenging backgrounds. One of the ways in which they can find a sense of belonging or identity or um, are able to move through a, a world that hasn't been relatively fair to them is by getting certainty of their identity um, or defining things. Um, and, you know, I, I can't really comment on that as a, you know, young white man i come from a very different life experience so i would just encourage them to, to ask themselves honestly as to why they're defining themselves and you know look at it if it's serving them and if so where and if so if it's not what what to what to do next 
So obviously I was just thinking about these, how you're challenging these perceived gender norms with the man cave. Um, how do you think that will trickle into other parts of life later on and the broader community as well? Yeah, my, listen, my hope is, uh, and I definitely don't say this to teenage boys because they probably wouldn't get it, but, you know, we really want to raise the consciousness of young men because we know that when people are more conscious, you know, more connected to themselves, to others, to nature, to the the communities they're in, they become more values-driven people and that means we get a better society and so you know for me it starts with self-awareness um and with the self-awareness we're able to like kind of burst their bubble and just start to reflect inwards for the first time ever and and from there you know we know that whether it's in intimate relationships in decisions they need to make in the companies that they end up working for or you know if we get future prime ministers of australia you know they have a sense of connection to you know themselves and others around them and um yeah they make the decisions based on what's best for everyone opposed to what's best just for profit and um so i got one last question this is a question i ask everyone but when you think of a safe space what do you think of Hmm. i think that my body feels safe which is a random answer i'm getting as i said that but i think there's a difference between like I think a lot of people declare safe spaces and you're like, oh, I don't feel that safe. Um, but I think when I think of a safe space, I feel like my body can relax and, you know, I trust my body and my gut often more than my mind because um, it's it just knows. It's got this like unbelievable detector built into it, um, truth detector. So, yeah, I think for me it's, yeah, I, I feel like my body feels safe and, I know I'm where I'm meant to be. Amazing. Well, you know, bodies tell us everything and our bodies can sometimes talk more than our mouths can. Mm, I agree. I uh, heard this amazing quote. Funny um, oh, how I remember it now. It was the, uh, the body whispers before the mind screams. And I was like, oh, that's so true. So true. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Our bodies know everything, honestly, even if our minds don't know it or they block it out. Who knows? Yeah, well, you've got to think about the mind as this like two million year old computer that's trying to deal with, you know, a very complex and fast moving world. So it's no wonder our brains is dealing with so much anxiety and overwhelm at the moment. It's like there's a lot of stimulus to take in. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Hunter. It has been really refreshing to hear a different perspective on the current challenges within the sexual-based violence sphere. If you want to hear more on stories like this or just want to know more about us at The Safe Space Project, make sure you head to The Safe Space Project website or Instagram at www.safespaceproject.info. There are plenty of tools, information and stories just like this to help us unlearn in order to relearn how each one of us can become a part of the change.